Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In late September 1933... Ten men broke out of a state penitentiary in Michigan City, Indiana, with the help of guns that were smuggled into prison. John Dillinger sent those guns to his friends, the men who worked in the shirt factory. All ten men made it out of prison, but from there, their lives took different turns. They had split into two groups, and the smaller group had a rough go of it. The group was led by Walter Dietrich and James Clark, two protégés of the godfather of modern bank robbery, Herman Lamb. Those two men spent years teaching John Dillinger and his friends the fine art of bank robbery. And ironically, they were two of the first to get caught after the escape. James Clark had been abandoned by Dietrich. Clark was arrested within days of the breakout. Dietrich was arrested in Chicago less than four months after his escape. The other group of escapees had more success. They were led by Harry Pierpont, who was one of Dillinger's closest friends in prison. Dillinger and Pierpont had organized the prison break. Pierpont guided his group to sanctuary in Indianapolis, but they didn't stay long before leaving for Ohio. They needed to repay a favor. Dillinger had helped them break out of prison, and now he was sitting in jail in Dayton, and they were going to bust him out. But along the way, they had problems of their own. As they were driving from Indianapolis to Dayton, they were confronted by state troopers. A firefight broke out between the two cars. One of the gang members was thrown out of the car during the chaos. He was James Jenkins, the brother of Mary Jenkins Longnecker. Mary had been Dillinger's girlfriend until she had inadvertently lured him into a trap. James was left behind by the gang during the shootout with the state troopers. Within two days, he was killed by a shotgun blast. Of the 10 men who broke out of the Indiana State Pen that September, only five remained to help Dillinger escape from jail in Dayton. But that's all he would need. From Black Barrel Media, this is season four of Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. And this season, we're telling the story of the most notorious bank robber in modern American history, John Dillinger. This is chapter five. Hostages. If I asked you to picture a meal that you could heat up in two minutes, you're probably going to picture a typical frozen dinner. 
One of those things that might look somewhat appealing on the box, but when you open it, you quickly discover it's less than appetizing. If that's what you're picturing, now picture the opposite. A meal you can heat up in two minutes that's always fresh, never frozen, made by a chef, and approved by a dietitian. That's Factor Meals. Restaurant-quality meals delivered to your door that require no prep and no cleanup. You just heat them up and eat them. There are 35 different options every week. They're healthy and approved for a variety of diet plans. And you get 50% off the service if you start right now. Go to factormeals.com slash infamousa50 and use the code infamousa50 to get 50% off. That's code infamousa50 at factormeals.com slash infamousa50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dillinger was in a media blackout in his jail cell in Dayton, Ohio. The local sheriff didn't allow visitors or interviews. If Dillinger knew his friends had escaped, he might think he was about to be rescued. If he thought he was about to be rescued, he'd be less likely to confess to his crimes. Even with the media blackout precaution, the prosecutors moved his hearing up two days, just in case. At the hearing, Dillinger surprised everyone. He instructed his lawyer to enter a plea of guilty to the bank robbery in Bluffton. Then John was sent to Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio. He wrote a letter to his father, explaining he thought he'd receive a better deal in Lima because there wasn't as much prejudice against him. He also told his father he wasn't guilty of half the things the newspapers accused him of, and he'd never hurt anyone. Then Dillinger said, I know I must have been a big disappointment to you. If I had gotten off more leniently when I made my first mistake, this never would have happened. Harry Pierpont and the four escaped convicts who were still with him rendezvoused with Harry Copeland, Dillinger's partner for the last few months. They carefully scouted the town of Lima and the outside of the jail where Dillinger now sat. They were eager for the rescue mission. In order to bankroll their endeavor, the gang robbed the First National Bank of St. Mary's in St. Mary's, Ohio. The job netted them $15,000 and went off without a hitch. A week later, the gang sent Mary Kinder to Kokomo, Indiana to find another of Dillinger's girlfriends. Her name was also Mary, but thankfully for all of us who are trying to keep this story straight, she was more commonly known as Billy. Billy's full name was Mary Evelyn Frechette. She was 25, with brown hair and brown eyes. Her father was French, and her mother was described as half French, half American Indian. A childhood battle with smallpox left her with facial blemishes that she hid with makeup. She'd become pregnant at 18 and listed four men as possible fathers. When her son was born, she left him at the Beulah Home and Maternity Hospital in Chicago, with other unwanted children. He died at five months old, presumably from syphilis, which he had inherited from her. 
Several years later, Billy met John Dillinger at a club in South Chicago's Olympic Hotel, and they became frequent companions. The gang wanted John to be reunited with her upon his early release. After days of planning, that early release was scheduled for mid-October, 1933, and it would cost a lawman his life. It was 6.30 in the evening. John Dillinger played pinochle in his cell with three other prisoners. The jail and the sheriff's office were attached to the sheriff's residence, which was fairly common in those days. Sheriff Sarber was down the hall from the cells in his residential quarters. He sat at his desk reading the local paper. His wife Lucy worked on a crossword puzzle nearby. An off-duty deputy, Wilbur Sharp, played with the Sarber's dog, Brownie. As the sheriff read his newspaper, he glanced up to see three well-dressed men enter the building through the front door. Sheriff Sarber walked up the hall and met them at the office. Harry Pierpont was the leader of the three men. He said they were from the prison in Michigan City. They were there to take custody of John Dillinger. Sheriff Sarber was suspicious and asked for their credentials and a transfer order. Pierpont showed his credentials by pulling out a 38 pistol. The sheriff reached for his gun, but it was in a desk drawer, and he wasn't fast enough. Pierpont shot him in the abdomen. The bullet tore through the sheriff's body and buried itself in his leg. It cut his femoral artery. Sheriff Sarber fell on his back. He tried to get up, but one of the criminals walked around the desk and hit him over the head. The crushing blow was so hard that it split the sheriff's scalp to the bone. Pierpont demanded the keys to the cells but Sheriff Sarber couldn't respond. Pierpont fired two warning shots at Sarber and then hit him again and again. Deputy Sharp jumped up to stop the assault. Because Sharp was off duty and not in uniform, the gang members thought he was a civilian. They stopped him, but they didn't beat him. Pierpont raised his gun to hit the sheriff again, but the sheriff's wife screamed for him to stop. She said she'd get the keys. She handed them to Pierpont, and he moved toward the cells. He grabbed the sheriff's gun out of the desk drawer and ripped the telephone wire out of the wall. Pierpont opened all the cells, and the other inmates thought this was their chance to escape as well. Pierpont fired a shot down the hallway and told him he only wanted John. When Dillinger walked out of the cell block area and into the office, he was shocked to see the sheriff's condition. The man's head was badly bludgeoned, and he had gunshot wounds to his side and his leg. But Dillinger and the gang didn't have time to linger. The four outlaws rushed out of the jail, jumped in Dillinger's Essex terraplane, and sped away. Dillinger had actually grown fond of Sarber during his short stay in jail. He didn't understand the need for the violence that had been inflicted on the man. Sheriff Sarber died later that night at the hospital. Six posses searched for the gang, but they came back empty-handed. A $5,000 reward was offered for the killers, dead or alive. Within days of the breakout, Pierpont and Dillinger led a raid on another police station. They needed guns. They were building an arsenal for their upcoming robberies.
John Dillinger and Billy Frechette reunited at the gang's hideout in Hamilton, Ohio. Once they were back together, they stayed together until the final three months of Dillinger's life. After two successive breakouts, Dillinger also reunited with his old friend Harry Pierpont. The newspapers said Dillinger was the gang's leader, but in these early days after the reunion, Pierpont took charge. His first priority was guns. Lots of guns. In mid-October 1933, less than a week after Pierpont broke Dillinger out of jail, the two men walked into the police station in Auburn, Indiana. They pointed guns at two officers and forced them to open the station's collection of weapons. The outlaws took a Tommy gun, a shotgun, a couple rifles, a bunch of handguns, loads of ammunition, and three bulletproof vests. But while the heist seemed easy, Dillinger and Pierpont didn't know it could have been a disaster. An informant had told Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach about the raid. But somehow the wires got crossed. Leach was waiting at the police station in Aurora, Indiana, and Dillinger and Pierpont robbed the station in Auburn, Indiana, 160 miles away. On the same day as the raid, J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation became involved in the hunt for John Dillinger for the first time. An Ohio congressman requested help catching the men who had killed Sheriff Sarber, and Hoover sent two agents to assist the effort. After Captain Leach's failed capture of Dillinger, Leach pressed his network of informants to find the gang's location. His best lead actually came from Harry Pierpont's brother. Harry's brother told Leach about the gang's hideout in Hamilton. Leach and his men raced to the hideout, but the gang had fled just moments before. Harry's brother also told Leach about a fishing camp on a nearby river. Again, Leach swooped in, but missed the gang. He found evidence they'd been there, but he was still one step behind. As Leach's frustration rose, he announced the creation of a unit called the Mobile Dillinger Squad. It was made up of six men who would search Indiana day and night for John Dillinger. As the pressure mounted on the states of Indiana and Ohio to catch the famous criminal, the two states got into a public feud over who was responsible for Dillinger's latest escape. Indiana claimed that Sheriff Sarber would still be alive if Dillinger had been extradited to the state as requested the month before. Ohio argued that if Indiana had captured Dillinger after any of his robberies, none of this would have happened. And now, Captain Leach added another layer to the legend of John Dillinger. He claimed that Dillinger had successfully robbed 24 banks in two months across four states, which was almost physically impossible. He tried to build up Dillinger so he could shift some of the blame onto Ohio. He told the press, it was a foregone conclusion that an attempt would be made to free Dillinger. We tried to make the Ohio people realize it, but they wouldn't believe us. And then Leach tried to position himself as the hero. He pitched himself as the one man who could stop this master criminal. Right on cue, and probably much to Leach's dismay, Dillinger and Pierpont robbed another police headquarters. The gun cabinet was stocked with weapons, and they took as many as they could carry. But raids like these were not just about collecting guns to use in robberies. They were about psychological warfare. 
The robbers wanted everyone to know they were well-armed, which they hoped would discourage people from trying to stop them. To heighten the fear, newspapers began calling Dillinger's crew the Terror Gang. And now, with a new arsenal in hand, the Terror Gang picked the next target, the Central National Bank of Greencastle, Indiana. Greencastle is only about 25 miles from Dillinger's hometown of Mooresville. And after the unprecedented number of robberies in Indiana in the past few years, the Central National Bank took a big new step in security. It built a steel cage over the front door. A guard sat in the cage to defend the bank from robbers. But there was one little flaw with this plan. It was currently late October 1933, and the guard got cold. The man climbed down from his cage and went inside to get warm. He was an elderly man, and he toddled down to the basement to stoke the fire. And of course, at that moment, a big black Studebaker rolled to a stop in front of the bank. Four men stepped out of the car. Three entered the bank, and the fourth stood guard outside the front door. In the bank, Harry Pierpont took the lead. He aimed his 45 Colt at the tellers. Dillinger and the third man pointed submachine guns at the crowd, but they couldn't cover everyone. An employee snuck outside and tried to find something to puncture the tires of the getaway car. When he couldn't find anything that would work, he ran to a phone and called the police. The sheriff's office was directly across the street in the courthouse, but for some reason, no one thought to call it. The county sheriff was close enough to take action, but the city police were not. The gang made quick work of the job, and on the way out, Dillinger showed some of the flair and bravado that he would be known for. He shouted to the crowd in the bank, take a good look at me, so you'll be sure to know me the next time you see me. The robbers escaped with a great score, and the event was national news which was disheartening for Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach. His mobile Dillinger squad was on the other side of the state at the time. On the same day Dillinger robbed the Greencastle Bank and made headlines across the country, Babyface Nelson robbed a bank in Brainerd, Minnesota. It was not headline news. Dillinger later claimed the Greencastle robbery made the gang about $32,000 between cash and bonds. But the bank reported a loss of $75,000 to its insurance company. Banks found ways to make money, even while being robbed. More and more stick-ups followed, and many, if not most, were erroneously credited to Dillinger. In response, the state of Indiana went into full panic mode. The state Congress dumped money into the war chests of any law enforcement agency willing to go after Dillinger. The state troopers received better cars, guns, and vests. Indianapolis police officers now carried two guns instead of one. All county sheriffs were given the power to deputize anyone willing to help against the terror gang. More than 700 National Guardsmen were stationed at armories throughout the state to protect them from Dillinger's gang. With all this buildup, the press had a field day. Reporters taunted Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach. They sent him notes and letters claiming to be Dillinger. 
The messages mocked Leach's failed efforts to catch the bandit. One reporter went so far as to send a book called How to Be a Detective. Leach was convinced it came from Dillinger. But Dillinger wasn't wasting time with Captain Leach. He wanted to have fun, and he was tired of sitting in a hideout in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. He and the rest of the gang wanted excitement, and a place where they could blend in. The perfect destination was just a short drive away. Dillinger and the gang headed for Chicago. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dillinger and his girlfriend, Billy Frechette, moved into an apartment in a quiet Chicago neighborhood. Harry Pierpont and his girlfriend, Mary Kinder, moved in next door. These were the waning days of 1933, which meant they were the waning days of Prohibition. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquor, as it was phrased, within the United States. It went into effect in January of 1920 and was enforced through the Volstead Act, which banned beverages that contained more than 0.5% alcohol. As a result, the illegal production and importation business skyrocketed. Uncountable millions were made from the illegal importation and sale of alcohol. And in the process, a crime wave swept across the nation like Americans had never seen before. Crime lords built empires in cities like Chicago. And in Chicago, the boss was Al Capone. In 1929, his men committed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre to complete his dominance of the criminal businesses in the city. But in 1931, his reign came to an end. Federal agents convicted him on tax evasion and he was sent to prison. When Dillinger arrived in Chicago in late 1933, Capone was in federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. He was eight months away from being transferred to a new prison that would eventually become one of the most infamous in American history, Alcatraz. And by this point in the calendar, the 18th Amendment was almost dead. The country had been crippled by the Great Depression for more than four years, and President Franklin Roosevelt was desperate to pump money into the economy. America could no longer afford prohibition. In March of 1933, Roosevelt signed an amendment to the Volstead Act that allowed the sale of beer and wine as long as their alcohol content remained below 3.2%. In December 1933, the 18th Amendment was fully repealed. At the same time as the repeal, John Dillinger, Harry Pierpont, and their girlfriends moved into a fancy building on the north side of Chicago. They shared a nice two-bedroom unit. There was a little spot called the Marianne Food Shop on the first floor of the building. Dillinger enjoyed frog legs and Schlitz beer at the shop. He and Pierpont created new rules for staying low. They told their girlfriends to avoid flashy dresses or drinking too much. 
The guys wore three-piece suits and matching fedoras that made them look more like bankers than robbers. But even in a big city surrounded by millions of people, they were discovered. An informant who knew them from prison gave the police a key piece of information. In response to the large number of bank robberies in Indiana in recent years, the state's Bankers Association hired an ex-Pinkerton detective named Forrest Huntington to track down the culprits. Huntington doubled his money by doing the same deal with the insurance companies that covered the banks. Essentially, he was paid twice for the same job. Huntington amassed an unparalleled amount of information on Midwest bank robbers. And one of his crucial informants was a man who had served time with Dillinger at Michigan City. The informant was Art McGinnis. Huntington put McGinnis in a position to make contact with Dillinger in Chicago. After several interactions, McGinnis learned that Dillinger suffered from a condition known as barber's itch, which irritated his scalp. McGinnis helpfully recommended a doctor, and then he told Huntington. Huntington worked with the Chicago police to try to catch the whole Dillinger gang. Huntington and the cops staked out the doctor's office and saw Dillinger and Pierpont go in for a visit. Huntington's informant told him that Dillinger was returning for another visit the next day, and Huntington made a plan. He wanted to follow Dillinger when Dillinger left the office. Hopefully Dillinger would go back to his hideout, and then Huntington could grab the whole gang at the same time. But then Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach learned about the operation. He rushed to Chicago between Dillinger's doctor visits and insisted that they take Dillinger at the doctor's office, dead or alive. Sixteen officers in four unmarked cars waited on the street for the robber to arrive. Huntington and Leach were there, and the rest were a mix of Chicago police and Leach's Indiana State Troopers. Shortly before 7.30 at night, Dillinger pulled up in his Essex Terraplane, and he wasn't alone. Billy was with him this time. Dillinger went into the office, and she waited in the car. He came out 15 minutes later. He must have noticed something odd in the street. Maybe it was the formation of the cars. They were unmarked police cars, but they might have been parked the wrong way against the curb, which would have made them stand out. And maybe he recognized one of the cars. Whatever it was, Dillinger sensed a trap. He slid in behind the wheel, probably told Billy to hang on, and then floored it in reverse. He raced out into traffic and sped away from the office. Only one cop car was able to keep up with the terraplane. As they roared down the street, one of Captain Leach's Indiana State Troopers leaned out the window and fired all the rounds from his 38 pistol at Dillinger's car. Then he blasted the terraplane with a shotgun. Dillinger didn't slow down. He pressed the gas pedal to the floor, made a couple quick turns, and vanished into the night. Dillinger initially thought he'd been ambushed by other gangsters. In the dark, the undercover cops didn't stand out as law enforcement. He discovered the truth, ironically, from the morning papers. News stories once again exaggerated Dillinger's escape. One paper said he had someone firing a machine gun from a specially made portal in the side of his car. 
It also said Dillinger's blonde companion fired her revolver at the cops like an expert. 99% of it wasn't true. Neither Dillinger nor Billy, who was a brunette, fired a single shot. But from the news stories, Dillinger learned the gunmen had been cops, not gangsters. And then he knew Art McGinnis set him up. Art McGinnis is predictably hard to track after he set up Dillinger. When Dillinger escaped the trap, McGinnis probably wanted to make himself scarce. It was said that Dillinger found McGinnis in Indianapolis several months later and tried to get revenge. But McGinnis disappeared into a large crowd, and Dillinger never caught him. The Chicago police issued a $10,000 bounty on John Dillinger, he and his men were to be shot on sight. After the narrow escape, Dillinger decided to abandon his beloved terraplane. It was clearly marked as his car, and now it was full of bullet holes as well. Forrest Huntington blamed Indiana State Police Captain Matt Leach for the failure of the mission. They had not captured Dillinger, they had not captured his gang, and Huntington's informant, Art McGinnis, had been exposed. And while cops from Chicago to Indianapolis dealt with the fallout on their end, there was fallout on Dillinger's end as well. Dillinger kicked two men out of the gang, one of whom was his partner before the men of the shirt factory broke out of prison, Harry Copeland. Copeland had been drinking heavily, and he had become a liability. A couple weeks later, he was arrested while waving a pistol in public and arguing with a prostitute. The media declared the arrest a major blow against Dillinger. But Captain Matt Leach assumed correctly that Copeland had already been released from the gang. And when the gang robbed a bank in Racine, Wisconsin at nearly the same time, Leach's suspicions were all but confirmed. On November 30th, 1933, Harry Pierpont, John Dillinger, and two of their shirt shop accomplices walked into the American Bank and Trust Company. They carried Tommy guns under their coats. Their getaway driver sat in a Buick outside. He was parked out of sight with the engine running. Pierpont pasted two large Red Cross posters on the plate glass windows at the front of the bank. The posters blocked most of the view from the outside. One of the robbers approached a teller window and told the teller to put his hands up. The teller had his back turned and he thought the command was a joke. When he finally turned around without putting his hands up, the robber panicked and pulled the trigger. The Tommy gun was set to single fire, so only one bullet hit the teller's elbow. He fell to the floor right next to the silent alarm and he quickly pushed it. Dillinger grabbed the bank president and another employee and marched them to the vault. While they opened the doors, an assistant cashier slipped away from the action and ran to the basement. On his way down the stairs, he stepped on a floor alarm that triggered a bell outside. The police had received the silent alarm several seconds earlier, but they were in no hurry to react because the alarm had malfunctioned numerous times over the past few weeks. Three officers casually headed for the bank, assuming this was just another false alarm. The gang's getaway car was parked around the corner, 
So when the three officers pulled up in front of the bank, it looked like it did every other time they'd been called out by the faulty alarms. But when they went inside, they found out this time was real. The first cop in the door got pulled aside by one of the robbers. The second cop had a Tommy gun, but he'd only brought it along as a kind of joke for the bank staff. The robbers, of course, didn't know that. One of them shouted, get the cop with the machine gun. One of the robbers fired at the officer and hit him in the shoulder. He crashed to the ground, and now they were off to the races. The gang had never been interrupted by the cops in the middle of a robbery, and Dillinger and Pierpont decided they only had one choice. Dillinger said they would have to shoot their way out the front. The gang took the guns away from the cops and pushed the employees and the customers toward the front of the bank. They would act as hostages and human shields. Harry Pierpont grabbed the bank president and pulled him close. Dillinger snagged a pretty young woman. The other two gang members fell in with the group and they pushed the hostages outside. A crowd had gathered in front of the bank in response to the blaring alarm and now a protective bubble of human shields spilled out of the bank ahead of the robbers. Suddenly, the sidewalk was overrun with spectators and hostages, many of whom had their hands straight up in the air. In other circumstances, it might have been funny, but not today. Pierpont, Dillinger, and the two other robbers pushed the mob toward the getaway car. One of the bandits ripped a burst of gunfire in the direction of detectives who had arrived on the scene. As the mob moved toward the car, hostages began to peel away and run for safety. When a young woman in a red dress tried to make a run for it, Harry Pierpont shouted at her to come back. At the car, the gang members climbed inside, but they forced three hostages to stand on the running boards on the side of the vehicle. The young woman in red, the bank president, and one of the cops clung to the outside of the car as the driver pulled away. The bandits inside the car held on to the hostages so they wouldn't fall off as the car drove through Racine, Wisconsin. Witnesses thought it was some sort of bizarre publicity stunt, or maybe a Hollywood movie production. A few blocks later, the gang pushed the police officer off the car and pulled the young woman and the bank president inside. They made it out of Racine and drove for an hour before turning off the main road and onto a secluded track that ran through the woods. The gang had a gas can stashed at the rendezvous point, and while one man filled up the car, Harry Pierpont marched the hostages into the woods. He tied them to a tree and told them to wait 20 minutes before they freed themselves from the loose bonds. With that, the gang fled Wisconsin. At the Bureau of Investigation in Washington, D.C., J. Edgar Hoover followed all the news of Dillinger and Pierpont. Though many considered Pierpont the leader of the gang, Hoover wanted Dillinger. Hoover named Dillinger the number one criminal at large at the end of 1933. The title was a precursor to the more famous label he would earn in the summer of 1934.
Next time on Infamous America, Dillinger kills a cop during a robbery for the first time. The gang heads to Tucson, Arizona to lay low, but the trip does not go as planned. Afterward, Dillinger takes a famous plane ride, he poses for a famous photograph, and then he pulls the most brazen stunt of his life. The most hotly debated moment of John Dillinger's career is next week on Infamous America. Primary research for this season was provided by Derry Matera, author of the best-selling book, Dillinger, The Life and Death of America's First Celebrity Criminal. This season was written by Sean Puglisi and myself. Music editing and sound design by Mike Hissong at Sneaky Big Studios. Artwork by Matt Lockery of My Colorful Past. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, for more details and join us on social media. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram and B Barrel Media on Twitter. And if you want to contribute to the production of our shows, please visit our Patreon page. You can also find discounts on our merchandise. That's patreon.com slash Black Barrel Media. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.